In this episode of Full Stack Radio, David and I talk about different strategies for securing webhooks, how to deal with webhook failures, and what it's like trying to customize Laravel Spark. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 62. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Full Stack Radio. This is the second time that uh, David Hemphill and I are on the show giving updates about the products that we're working on. So I'm working on an app called Kitetail and David's working on an app uh, called Crondog. So how's it going today, man? It's going good, my friend. So uh, I think I saw that you were working on some new stuff with uh, Crondog. You sent me a couple messages, but I didn't really uh, dive deep into it to see what was going on. So what are some of the new things that you've been working on? Well, I've been working on per schedule time zones like we talked about last episode. Uh, right now it is utilizing, or previously it was using the team's time zone and kind of applying that to all the the schedules that you create. But now this is per schedule. So if you have a, a single user schedule, you can offset it based on their time zone or whatever you want. Yeah. What does like, the payload look like when you send a request to Crondog to say like, here's a task that I want to schedule. Like what sort of data are you sending? The The payload in, uh, specifically is could be nothing or it's just a key value store. It's really flexible for the, the person using it, you know, whatever they want to use. You can send authentication tokens in or some sort of secret that you want to verify on your end. But most of my schedules are empty, really. So what about like the actual metadata that you have to send though to say like how often the task should trigger what time zone it should be in that sort of thing like what's that structure like so i'm guessing you're sending some json to the api that has like how often it should happen or whatever and then one of the keys is like the payload that you want crondog to send back to you Mm -hmm. but i guess i'm more curious about like how you designed the rest of that like, are you sending, like, a cron string? Or are you sending, like, the word daily or monthly? Definitely sending in, like, daily and then any of the relevant details to that. So if it's every other week, I'll send um, bi-monthly or, you know, twice weekly or monthly and as a string. And then it basically takes all of that, including the, the end date, really parses that and figures out a cron string that we store in the database. Okay, so you can specify... Uh, when it should start and when it should end in addition to like the you know recurring aspect of it Mm -hmm. okay that's kind of cool and then do you also specify i guess like the time that it should run so or is that baked into like the the start time so if i want something to run daily and i want it to start on april 10th or whatever is there another key for specifying what time that should start or do you say that it should start on april 10th at 7 p.m and then it'll always do it at 7 p.m since you set it as daily yeah it'll always do it at, at 7 p.m so based on the the start date though so there's not like a separate key for the time of day that it should fire and the date that it should start i guess it just kind of assumes it's the start date that you but you're passing in like a full date time string, right? Like not just a day that it should start. I guess that's all I'm trying to understand is like, how do you tell it what second it should fire the task the first time? Okay. So like you have a, a daily schedule, you know, you'll, you'll specify daily and then you'll say like once a day at 7 PM and then it'll create a cron string based on that. Okay. So 
there is one key that has like that as a sentence in it, like once a day at 7 p.m. Yeah, it'll be it'll be daily. The type will be the type of daily. So we have yearly, twice monthly, monthly, weekly, daily, hourly, and minutely. Okay. So there's the type and then there's a start and the end. Is that the only three pieces of data? It varies depending on which type you pick. So if you have yearly, you can choose the month and the day. Okay. Right when 12 o'clock a.m. or whatever it is on that day, that's when it'll fire. And monthly is is similar, but it just chooses the day of the month that you want. Twice monthly will let you pick between two days. So you can have something fire on the 1st and the 15th or... The Got first it. range is 1 to, to 14, and then right now it's 15 to 28 for the second. Got it. So you can have, so each type basically has its own set of properties, I guess, depending on what data is needed to construct that, which makes sense. Right. And so like hourly doesn't have any options other than an end date. So how do you, if something wants to run hourly, but I want it to run at 7.15, 8.15, 9.15, where do I specify that information? We don't have that yet. Okay. It's kind of assumed that it's the top of the hour, uh, but I could definitely see where that would be handy if you wanted to, you know, figure out some scheme where you're offsetting your schedules. Yeah. Cool. So you said you're working on time zone stuff so that you can have time zone specific per task. What did that look like to add? It was pretty simple. You know, it was basically adding a column on each schedule, you know, for time zone and adding inside my view component, uh, an option to have the drop down and then accepting via the API a time zone parameter and you know doing some basic validation that it was in my list of time zones that we support cool so that's just a standard field now that's added to every single API request that you would make to create a new task right i'm i'm kind of debating whether to make it required or not because right now it's required for each schedule but that seems kind of like unnecessary, you know, if the team is in the central time zone and they want every schedule to be based on that because their system already accounts for that, you know, it might be nice to not have to specify that each time they create one. Yeah, like just have a default if you don't provide it or something. Right. I, I was thinking about getting rid of the time zone option on the team because it didn't seem necessary, but that could be a good fallback. Yeah. So I guess the other times it probably doesn't matter as much as, well, maybe you tell me. So if you have something that runs minutely, it doesn't really matter what time zone you're running each minute in, but does that affect, I guess, like the start and end time then? Hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't affect anything at this point, the way it's set up now. It would just run minutely, you know, because we don't have start dates for every schedule now yet. And I think we will eventually want to have it to where you can start on a certain day. But it, right now, if you create it, it's assumed that you want it to start immediately the first time it's possible got it okay so there's no start and end date for everything i guess like i'm trying to figure out what this schema looks like in my head and i guess i had it wrong so i was thinking that you had like a start and an end date and then a type and then some stuff associated with the type but the start and end date when is there a start and end date i guess like for what types of schedules there's a for every schedule type there is an end date but there's not a start date okay so you can have this run like i can say here's a cron that i want to run every hour for the next 10 days or something and then it'll just stop after that right and when you provide the end date are you providing like a time with like a time zone like baked into the string or is that going to be affected by the time zone setting that you passed in yeah that'll be that'll be based on the time zone cool 
because an hourly until this certain date. Yeah, I guess that's a lot. That brings up an interesting question. You know, what if you wanted to say exactly what hour it should stop? Because there's a lot of like a you can go really complex with all of these. It seems like with yeah bells and whistles. But what's what should I offer the first time? Yeah, it's tough. I guess like if you want to run something minutely, then I w- I could see like a strong case for where you might want to be able to specify like don't run this or stop running this at x time of day or whatever like you'd probably want to be able to specify at least in the same kind of level of precision as how often the task is running yeah that makes sense hmm yeah it's one of those things that uh (laughs) you know there's always so much more complexity in everything i guess than you expect Right. Uh, when you get into the details and it's hard to anticipate what your market might need or want without having a bunch of customers to base that data off of or being able to do a yeah. bunch of research for potential customers yeah so you mentioned to me that you were looking at trying to move some of what push silver does over to using cronzog or new stuff for push silver or something mm-hmm. what are your, kind of your plans there well, right now, PushSilver is using its own homegrown scheduling, recurring scheduling, and it's only monthly right now. But I think there's, you know, obviously people want to send invoices twice a month or bi-monthly. And so I think that would be a good opportunity to kind of refactor the whole system around CronDog. So what it would probably entail is converting those old recurring invoices, which is not too many, actually. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be hard if I just manually, manually set them myself. Cool. So one topic that like I'm running into pretty soon because it's something that I need to start thinking about with uh, what I'm doing with Kitetail is dealing with like network failures and stuff when it comes to these like somewhat distributed systems, I guess, where, you know, one server relies on being able to talk to some other server for something to to work properly Mm -hmm. so i have this fear that like when someone pays and i'm supposed to make this webhook request back to their server uh what if the request times out and i'm just left hanging or what if they've deployed a bug to their server and now i get a 500 on that stupid endpoint and i haven't really um come up with like a strategy that i really feel is you know the right way to handle it so I'm kind of curious, like what you're thinking uh, for CronDog for handling like those sort of annoying failure conditions. Have you thought much about that yet? I've thought about it a little bit. That's why we're storing each result every time it fires. We're storing that so they can view it. But then we also have an alerting system so that they can opt in to failure alerts and get those emailed to them or in the activity center of you know the actual app. So it it just basically lets them see what response we we got back from their endpoint. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Are you doing anything like do you try multiple times like if there's a failure or do you just like give up? Like if you get an error back, that's it. Just wait until the next time the task is supposed to schedule or to run before running it again. Yeah. Being that it's so early in the product, we're not retrying anything and, you know, for stuff like minutely, you wouldn't want to retry those anyways. You could probably wind up in a weird situation where you're yeah, firing something it. twice in the same minute, you know, if you were retrying. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of this fear with the retry stuff that if I get a 500 back from someone's server, there's no guarantee that half of the work didn't happen. You know what I mean? Right. And then f- sending it again. Uh, so an example would be like my course app. So if I'm using Kitetail to allow someone to buy access to my course and I make a webhook request to uh, the course, 
and I have a bug in the code that determines the URL to return back after creating their account or something. So it goes through that endpoint, it creates an account, it sends them an email with access to their account, but then it 500s after all that stuff. If I retry that webhook, say say I'm supposed say by default I retry each webhook three times or something, that's gonna create three accounts for that person now. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. Retry bugs. Yeah, so it's kind of uh, tricky to figure out what the right move there is, especially in my situation where it's like, it's a blocking thing that gets in the way of like the user experience of someone buying. So when someone hits that pay button on the checkout page, the response that they ultimately get and where they get redirected and all that stuff is dependent on the other server accepting the webhook properly and returning a valid response, right? So I'm trying to figure out like how defensive i guess i want to be there um the thing that i've been thinking which i wonder what your opinion is on this i think what you're saying about like capturing the exact payload that comes back from the server and logging that as just like a blob in the database i guess for each request Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me because that makes it i'll be really helpful for people to like debug but if i do get an error back i'm wondering if i should retry or if i should have like a fallback like thank you page or something that you know just says like hey your purchase was successful you'll be hearing from you know whatever vendor shortly sort of thing and just hope that no one ever hits that but i don't know do you have any ideas on like what a what other options there would be for handling sort of failure situations uh when it's like a blocking thing that's visible to the user yeah, I'm trying to think if there's a way to remove that blocking element. So you talked about, you know, you don't it it's blocking when you're trying to you're getting the token, you're sending back and you're getting a URL from their server based on if the payment was okay. And that's kind of what the whole idea of the service is that you're yeah. guaranteeing that they have good you know, the payments go through and that they're guaranteed to get it. If there's a way that you could sort of like Amazon does when they do payments, they don't, you know, charge your card right away. They'll just take your information and kind of fire it off to a queue and send you a success message and say, we'll be charging your card shortly, essentially is what they do. And then if it doesn't, if your card doesn't work for whatever reason, you'll know about it within five or 10 minutes. Is there a way that you could do something like that? Does that kind of violate what you're trying to do with the whole product? It's hard to say, like, I don't want to make that the uh, the primary, like, flow because I think it sucks to like go to my course site, click the call to action to buy, put in all your payment information, and then just see a thank you page that's like, wait for an email that gives you access to the course. Like that's not the worst thing in the world, but it seems like obviously better to me if as soon as the payment's done, you're presented with a link to click to get access to the thing that you bought right away. And obviously I can't do that unless I make it blocking because I need to return a unique URL per customer it can't just be like the same url for everyone because then there would be like some public page with no sort of token authentication or anything that anybody could get access to so it's hard to say i think what i'm leaning towards is attempting the webhook once and if it fails basically doing what you're saying like showing like a page that gives the customer some confidence that everything went through okay and that they should expect 
um, you know, to hear from the person who's using Kite Tail as like the integrator with access to whatever they bought. And hopefully it just never happens because the only time it should happen is if that person has deployed a bug to their Kite Tail integration, which prevents me from being able to get a valid response to redirect uh, mm-hmm. that person to at the end of the day. So I think that's probably a reasonable way to do it. Originally, I was thinking about like retrying, but it's hard to, There's I can't think of a good reason to retry. Like unless I could differentiate between like a network failure and an actual server error on the other person's side. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I haven't looked in to see if that's possible. Like if you get like a timeout, say, and you're using Guzzle or something to uh, make an HTTP request somewhere. Can you get a timeout? You can get a timeout just because the person's server responded too slowly, right? Like if the endpoint takes 30 seconds to do the work that it's trying to do, that could cause a timeout error on my side, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, definitely. I have that happen all the time. So there's no real way for me to know that like I I guess like you might get certain errors from uh, curl or whatever that tell you it couldn't resolve the host or whatever. So I guess I would need to be able to differentiate like did I get to their server or not? And if I did get there, retrying is probably not wise. But if I didn't get there at all, then maybe I could retry because that's more likely either some random one-off bug that hopefully won't appear again or some misconfiguration on my side which will probably affect every single customer yeah it seems like a hard thing to detect because if you for some reason set every request to to loop back to local host for some stupid reason you know it's going to still time out but you're not going to be able to know whether that was because you did that or because it hit the endpoint and it took too long to get any response back yeah yeah we'll see so anyways that's that's useful i think i definitely won't retry i think i'll just do what you're saying just log that whole payload probably send an email off to the person being like hey your uh integration is completely screwed up what is going on (laughs) and then provide like some sort of nice uh don't worry everything is on fire but it's okay (laughs) message to the actual person purchasing i mean the other option that i considered was even if the payment goes through successfully and i get an error back from the uh the other server i could just initiate a refund instantly on the person's Mm -hmm. charge and then just present them with an error that's like you know this product is unavailable right now or something but that seems kind of uh i don't know maybe going too far especially because like they might actually have access to whatever they bought now if you run in that situation we were talking about where half the work succeeds on the server but just something later in the process you know causes an overall 500 issue yeah it may be in your mind does this sound like a good idea that how long do those stripe tokens last how long are they good because you could potentially create uh, a system that you know you can retry this payment in 30 minutes if you come manually do it does that seem a little kludgy uh, what do you mean if you manually do it like it's like if you just store the token after it fails. I guess it's a one-use token, so it wouldn't you wouldn't have it yeah. to be able to try again. Well, the token would succeed. Like the charge would all succeed because I don't make the webhook request until after I know that the payment has all processed properly, right? Oh yeah. So it's really a question of do I refund the money or do I just like 
I mean, you can make it a preference or something, but I don't really like the idea of basically deferring every decision about how to make the product work nicely to the end user. Yeah. <laughs> now I think it's better to make, um, to try and make good decisions that are more opinionated and make it a, a nice experience. But yeah, I think probably the refund idea is not great, but yeah, I don't know. It's a scary thing to, uh, hopefully not see often, but you never know. People deploy bad code all the time. Yeah. So we'll just have to see. I mean, I could always, um, build in some sort of, uh, mechanism to avoid it. Like if someone tries to purchase and uh, it fails, maybe say three purchases fail in a row or something, I can just literally disable the product or something, which will hopefully light a fire under the person's ass to come and fix their, uh, <laughs> their server before, you know, they have more and more customers with failed purchases to deal with. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know the whole, that whole aspect makes it kind of, uh, tricky to figure out a great great flow for like if everything goes well the whole thing is fine but yeah some of these uh error situations make for some interesting decisions to have to make yeah definitely and you kind of want to teeter that line of if you go too deeply into helping them recover from their errors on their end you know if you ever roll those features back or want to not do that anymore it could be you know very upsetting for the users that are used to relying on that. And that's kind of where with cron dog, I'm saying, you know, we'll tell you when it goes wrong and we'll show you what we know, but up to you after that. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense for sure. Just wanted to take a minute to thank hired for sponsoring full stack radio. So searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, time consuming. You know, you got pushy recruiters trying to sell you on roles that you don't want or job boards that make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go through the whole interview process only to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. So hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. The goal of Hired is to make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. So you just fill out one simple application and then top employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests with upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big companies like Facebook, as well as smaller emerging startups. And the size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. So right now, Hired can help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And they keep all your information totally private, so there's no way that your current employer or past employer can see that you're looking for a new job. The best part about Hired is that it's completely free to you as the person who's looking to get hired. In fact, Hired will actually pay you a $1,000 hiring bonus if you take a job that was offered to you through Hired. And for Full Stack Radio listeners, they're actually doubling that offer to $2,000. So if you're a Full Stack Radio listener who's looking for a new opportunity, you can use Hired to look for a new job. And if you take one through Hired, you'll get $2,000. So if you're interested in more details about that, you can head over to www.hired.com slash fullstackradio to find out more. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. The other thing I'm trying to decide um, with that whole sort of same checkout flow is, so 
last night I finally got like a full on complete working kind of demo done where I can create a product, set up the webhook, you know, make sure that the webhook is signed with like a secure key, which is maybe a topic we can talk about too. Um, so create the product, get everything all set up, get a public link, put that public link in my landing page, click that, get to the checkout, pay for everything, have it make the webhook request back to my app and then have it do all the redirect stuff. Like, so I finally have that done in a way that I can actually show people uh, that isn't just like happy path stuff. So I spent a lot of time getting all the client side error handling stuff working in the checkout form and making that as nice as I possibly could. So that's all working now. Uh, But I kind of have like a weird, it's more of a UI decision, I guess, to make about when someone pays and I get that redirect URL back from the other server. Right now, I just redirect to it instantly but I'm wondering if it makes more sense to have like an intermediate screen after the person pays uh, that's like a payment sort of confirmation that lives on KiteTail still that just has a link to take you to whatever that redirect that came back was. And I don't have a really strong opinions either way, but I'm just trying to make a decision about it. Like, I guess the, the thing that makes me want to do it is that, if I don't have that, basically everyone else is going to want to provide that same sort of screen themselves. So like the way I have the demo set up right now in my course, after you buy through KiteTail, you get redirected to a site that has a unique token in the URL to identify that this is your purchase. Uh, but it's just a page that says like, hey, thanks for purchasing the course. Uh, here's the a link that you can click to sign in with GitHub now to get access to the course, as well as just some information about like, uh, you should expect to receive an email and you'll be given access to this repository and stuff like that. So some of that's kind of tricky in some ways because I still need, it's kind of custom, right? Like I can't provide that sort of information on a KiteTail thank you page, but I could just have the link that I put on the KiteTail thank you page take you directly to the GitHub login link or whatever Mm -hmm. so i don't know i'm trying to make a decision about that if you were someone who went to a a site and purchased something on kitetail.co and filled out that checkout form would you rather see like an order confirmation that lives on that same domain or do you think it makes more sense to just get redirected right away after the payment succeeds i think my expectation would be that there would be some sort of intermediate kitetail screen you know, that's either when you hit submit and it's doing all the payments stuff, it's telling me, hey, you're when this goes through, you're going to get redirected automatically to testdrivenlaravel.com. Or yeah. or it could be a whole nother page that kind of sits there and waits for it to all to be successful and then offers you a link or re- redirect, redirects you that way too. I don't think like going straight straight there would be, I think that could be kind of confusing. Yeah, it feels like you probably want to see something that indicates that the payment you just tried to process in this form, like not that you wouldn't know it succeeded, but it kind of feels nice and makes you feel more confident that things were done in like a sane, structured, logical way to see like a a confirmation screen, I think. So that's probably what I'll end up doing. I think it gives you a a better opportunity to kind of handle those cases too if there's any like last minute failures or something that you need to handle instead of just going direct there maybe you want to ping that url and make sure it's good or something like that yeah 
I guess I could also offer like links to download your receipt and stuff there too. Cause I, I want kite to be able to handle all that stuff. So you don't have to worry about sending someone an email receipt or anything that'll just be kind of baked in. So probably does make the most sense to do that. So that's probably something I'll work on, uh, this weekend maybe. Mm. So, um, something that we kind of touched on briefly for a second there was this idea of like a webhook security. So this was a topic that I literally didn't know anything about until I started building uh, this app, trying to make sure that, you know, someone can't find your endpoint where you're expecting webhooks and send a JSON payload there that says, Hey, uh, I purchased this course when really it didn't actually come from the right place mm-hmm. and sort of spoofing that stuff have you uh implemented anything to take care of that on cron dog i haven't yet i've looked into a couple approaches providing a token that we generate that they can always rely on and somehow calculate that's legit it seems kind of like a, an interesting problem what have you kind of uncovered yeah so i think there's three sort of ideas that came to mind that i kind of saw different examples of that I can explain briefly and then talk about the one I chose and why it seems to be a pretty decent option. So the first one, which is probably the first option that most people think of, is kind of like a security through obscurity sort of approach, like make the webhook endpoint uh, really impossible to find by brute force. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is uh, something that I've done on other apps before, not apps that were really important but little toy stuff uh but yeah like having something that's like you know uh, my app dot io slash hooks slash 64 cryptographically secure random digits you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and then as long as that doesn't get ever leaked somehow then you know that's pretty fine i don't think that's like a terrible approach really because there shouldn't be any way for someone to ever see that url it's not like that ever gets hit on the client side during my checkout process or anything it's like server to server it's the only place that that ever happens so i think it's reasonable to expect that you should be able to keep that secret but that's one way that you could do it another way that i've seen is providing some sort of identifier in the payload and the server that receives the payload can then ping back to where they expected it to come from and verify that that was like a valid token. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if like something, some webhook comes in from Stripe or something with like a refund ID, you can always make a request to Stripe's API and fetch the refund by its ID. And if Stripe comes back with a 404, then you know that someone else forged that and that refund isn't a real Stripe refund. Uh, But I didn't like the idea of having to make that extra request, especially because I have this like blocking process, right? So the fewer network requests, uh, the better. So the option that I saw that I liked the most was um, the way GitHub does it actually, which is using a HMAC signature of the whole payload. So I didn't really know anything about this until I started looking into it. But basically the idea behind like HMAC uh, message authentication is that you have a shared secret between the person sending the payload and the person receiving the payload. So in KiteTail, when you create a product, there's a form field for you to paste like the key that you want to use for the HMAC signatures. Mm -hmm. So I generated just like a 64 character random string 
on the command line using Laravel's like stir random function. Yeah. And I just paste that in there to save with the product. And then I store that as an environment variable in my course. And whenever KiteTail wants to send a new sale over, uh, it sends a header, which I have set as like X KiteTail signature custom header. And that header is uh, the result of hashing the payload and the secret key uh, using, uh, I think I'm using the SHA-256 hashing algorithm. So you basically take the payload and, you know, that key. And I don't know the exact algorithm of how, like, HMAC is doing it. I don't think it's as simple as just, like, appending them together. I think it's doing some weird thing to kind of blend it all in before it hashes it. Uh, but, yeah, you get that SHA-256 uh, hash come in and then on my server side right at the top of that endpoint i just check that header and check the body that it sent me and i hash uh, the body with the secret key that i have in the environment variable and make sure that my result matches what's in the header and if it does then i know that whoever sent me the payload has my secret key which in theory should only ever be kite tail unless i somehow leaked that or someone stole it right right so that's like a way that i can verify that the webhook came from a trusted source without having to make any additional uh, webhook requests and without having to have like some secret url that i hope no one finds so that's the approach that i'm using uh right now and it seems pretty cool but i don't know if i want to make it mandatory or not um, for people implementing it. I think it's probably fine to make it like highly recommended, but not force you to do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Cause there's a case where a person might want to create their own sort of token authentication and leave you out of it completely. So like if they create a, their web hook is slash pay and it auth equals token, you know, that's what they're expecting and they provide the token. Well, I guess I'm thinking on the cron dog side, cause I know server apps can create their own tokens uh, or you know some sort of authentication key like open id or oauth key yeah. you know we could create a webhook or a schedule that has that already baked into the webhook and then i can just send that off blindly you know oblivious to whatever that means to their webhook url with that auth token and then they can verify it themselves so I, and i think when you're getting into like the security hmac stuff especially with markets that may not be like you know, people may not be really comfortable with those terms, which it seems like some of the people that might use your app would be, you know, in that case, it could be kind of scary. Yeah. I think it really depends like, um, yeah, where it gets used in the sort of a people that I'm trying to build it in mind for right now, I think it would be fine. So like, you know, using it on my course, obviously it's no problem for me to use it. Or for Taylor to use it on Spark, it wouldn't be a problem for him. But if I ever wanted to go down the path of supporting like some WordPress plugin or something where the person is self-hosting something that needs to integrate with it, but they're not, you know, super technical, then it would be, yeah, it'd be kind of weird to be like, hey, here's like a field where you have to paste in a cryptographically secure uh, secret key and you have no idea where to get one from. Yeah, unless you provide uh, a link. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Probably we'll uh, just make it highly recommended, but not absolutely force you uh, to use it. But yeah, that approach is seems like it's going to work pretty well anyways. So I would recommend that if you were <laughs> looking to uh, find something in the same boat. It seems like the uh, has the least drawbacks from what I've been able to, to find. Right. I was kind of looking through other systems, and I know that 
iron.io kind of has a similar push queue system and i was kind of you know just scoping out what they do and they see you know besides offering https endpoints that they'll hit they also they suggest if you want authentication to basically pass in an authentication key in your own your url so that's kind of seems like a verification at least for my use case on something i could do yeah i think you could technically do it the same way too if you wanted like whenever someone creates a project in crondog you could just have one secret key for like the whole project yeah and you could just sign every webhook with that signature yeah store this in your environment on your project and you can verify it if you want yeah exactly you don't you're not forced to verify it of course but yeah yeah that sounds like a good approach Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the the tour and looked at at Rollbar and all its competitors, and it was was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is is really... uh, It's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy and we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. What else have you been working on? Any other interesting stuff? Well, we I've been working on this, you know, the Spark kind of boilerplate that Laravel offers, and I'm kind of running into some frustrations with like inline templates versus actual components. Just the way it's all the build is set up. You know, it's it's a really smart default to kind of use the view.component syntax, but I've really grown like accustomed to just importing the modules I want without using any of that sort of the view.component, defining it in line and you just require it in a big list of all your components. Mm, so does Spark use inline templates or does it use .view components currently? It doesn't use .view components. It does use inline templates. And so like your home is a home.js, which is just... Just like the JavaScript behavior, like what would be in the script tag in a .view component? Right. And then it registers a, a view.component home and the it just requires the, the home.js instead of, you know, kind of the ES6 import module syntax. So there's like one master JavaScript file that imports all those different kind of script components and binds them up as components in view. Yep. So how is it like actually making use of those components in your, well, you're using inline template, right? So are most of those components like just used one time in Spark? Yeah. It's kind of a, yeah, like you'll have a, 
a home like that home component you'll have a home tag on the home.blade.php and if you wanted to have a, a schedules index listing you would have a schedules.js and define a view.component schedules and then require that file and then you'd have a schedules.blade.php that would utilize that tag that is created when you register the component and it'd be schedules and it, it kind of does all that but it wraps it in a master app component yeah but the, because it's real components it's not like you have to have ids on everything and then have some little javascript at the bottom of each page that says find this id and bind this component to it or anything right it's not like that it's because that whole app is kind of wrapping all of those components up yeah You're just registering them globally with your app component and then it reads the tag and will instantiate the right component based on that so what were you saying the problem that you were running into is it's just i'm kind of like used to not having anything like that i've I've utilized a lot of inline templates in the past with other projects but with some of the recent stuff i've been working on you know for work or kind of my own other throwaway projects i've been really liking almost the single page app type thing and so it's it's one of those points where do I continue to follow the conventions provided by Spark or do I kind of take a step back and build it the way that I'm the most comfortable with? That's kind of one of the things I've been thinking about recently. So would you be thinking about going like full SPA? Uh, I could see it definitely being useful, but you kind of like don't know what you don't know until you get there, how complex your use case winds up being. And so, but I, I feel like it could be faster on certain aspects, not fighting against spark but also i feel like maybe utilizing the page to page flow that spark provides with all the defaults might be a saner choice too yeah it's hard to say like i don't think i would ever use spark for one of my own things to, just because of kind of what you're saying like i think it gets you really far to help you like kind of validate an idea and get it up and running pretty fast but I feel like the goal at the end of the day is probably to slowly replace all of that stuff kind of piece by piece with your own stuff as your needs sort of become more specific to your app, right? Like it seems like it'd be really hard to build something that's generalized and will always work for everyone forever. Like it seems like a really quick way to get up and running fast, similar to Bootstrap, right? But over time, if you look at apps that, used bootstrap most of them eventually end up with this really big layer on top of it to the point where you know that stuff starts getting stripped out until eventually it's gone like i guess the example i can think of is like heroku if you look at heroku's html it's very clear that it was using bootstrap at least in the early days like they have all the same class names they're using the grid and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't look anything like bootstrap and 75% of the class names that you see are not bootstrap classes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like it's the same, same sort of angle uh, with spark. I guess I would be worried that it's giving me things that I don't necessarily need or has opinions that are going to subtly clash with what I want to do to the point where it's just like more frustrating trying to customize it than it would be to just write the code that I need from the beginning, you know? Yeah. Like one case I can think of spark doesn't require that you use it for the whole app. It doesn't require that you use view even, but just for the, like the billing and the team setup, 
and your password and that sort of thing. You have to have view if you want to use their components. Um, yeah. But, and that's, that's cool. I could see where you would kind of like have your own app that utilizes the, the Spark API and such, and you handle it yourself. But even the, on the back end stuff, if you're wanting, like when I was building the team time zone function, when you're in the team settings on Spark, you have a photo section and then there's like an update team name. And those are the two components that it comes with. But I wanted to add, you know, update team time zone and they have, you know, documentation on how to add fields and how to do validation for all that. But it comes in its own panel instead of kind of like in line where you'd want to put a big list of fields to update. And so yeah. that a part of that feels a little janky. Yeah. It's just like deciding, do I want to, put it in its own tab because that's what it, it makes easy or do I want to like hack it together and somehow get it into the spot where I want it to be you know even though I might be kind of coloring outside the lines a little bit to make it work right and with spark if you don't edit any of the default views anytime there's updates or upgrades or security fixes it'll replace those views if you haven't updated them but if you have that's kind of when it leaves you to your own devices to update it yourself. Yeah, so you don't get really any of the benefits of any of the new uh, updates or anything after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say. I kind of like that approach of not treating it as like a like a third-party dependency and thinking of it more like generated code that you own. Yeah. I think I would feel better about like owning the whole thing and just having it there to start with and then customizing the crap out of it. Like that's what I do with Laravel's other scaffolding stuff. So if I use like make auth or something to generate my auth stuff and get all my controllers, like I feel no qualms about going in there and just ripping out tons of stuff, changing stuff. Like if it uses a trait that's in the vendor library, half the time I'll copy and paste that trait into the controller and remove the trait from my controller just so I can edit it as much as I want, you know, mm-hmm. and just feel like I own it. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, it seems like that would be a good approach. I, I guess it just depends on what sort of updates there are and what ones you're going to be afraid to, uh, to lose. Yeah. There was a case where for a, a brief second, there was, they had switched to Axios instead of view uh http or what was that view resource resource. yeah and so they it seems like they kind of did a grep and find and replaced all of the view.post or view.get with axios and there was some some problem with the way this was handled inside the the callbacks and so it it broke every every instance of that the the request that wasn't accommodating for that and and so like that was a really confusing thing because you kind of expect first party code or or third party code or whatever code you're using for Spark to be just right all of the time. But, you know, bugs do sneak in. So I can see where like if you're relying on that and you've got like a broken version or like if you are totally divorcing yourself from, you know, you're treating it as generated code that you own from then on out. If you happen to have a buggy version of that code, you know, it's on you to fix all the, the problems whether either whether you know what they are or not. Yeah, it's it's hard to take ownership of code when you don't necessarily know the ins and outs of it or don't feel comfortable maintaining it yourself. That's definitely a tough decision to make. Mm-hmm. But then if you're not willing to do that, you have no choice but to really work within the constraints of, you know, the the framework that it's provided for you and make sure that you're following the conventions. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself into a, a mess that you don't know how to fix anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so tricky to say. 
I don't know what to recommend in that case. <laughs> I think like, um, I don't know. I think like a good approach would be to maybe rely on the back end stuff, but like feel totally comfortable swapping out the view components and front end stuff if you wanted to. Cause isn't it like pretty, uh, pretty kind of componentized in terms of almost every action has like its own like little job class or command class and stuff because it's kind of designed to to give you sort of really narrow control over each thing and to swap out small pieces right and not be like bound to using the whole thing if you don't want to yeah you can definitely if you just know that the endpoints you can hit them the way you want to hit them instead of utilizing whatever is provided for you. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So um, one other thing that maybe would be fun to talk about is uh, we're both going to MicroConf next week. So this will probably come out while we're at MicroConf, uh, probably next Tuesday or Wednesday. So MicroConf is a conference put on by Rob Walling and Mike Tabor, who do the Startups for the Rest of Us podcast. And uh, yeah, it's I'm looking forward to it i don't know i've never been to a non kind of programming conference before and this one's more focused on uh people trying to bootstrap businesses uh specifically SaaS businesses for the most part but i know there's people there who also have like uh info product businesses and stuff too so uh what are you kind of looking forward to at the conference well i don't really know what to expect because like you i've only been to tech conferences but you know as trying to spin these SaaS's up to profitability is helpful to see the people that are kind of the the figureheads that are doing it and hopefully just take maybe one or two or three little pieces that kind of totally change your brain and get you in the right mode you know like developers aren't typically that good at marketing i'd love to you know learn some little tip at marketing that makes it totally uh kind of like more doable than (laughs) just my little homegrown efforts yeah, I think I'm in the same boat basically. Like uh I don't have like a specific thing that I want to learn or anything. I'm just kind of going hoping that someone's going to talk about something that I never would have even thought of that like really gets me excited about something I can uh try or some idea that I can use that will hopefully, you know, increase my chances of being able to turn uh this product into a full-time thing. Right. They have a like a talk that's getting to your first 1000 customers with no marketing budget and that sounds exactly like where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I could get Definitely. to a thousand, that would be awesome. Yeah. Or, or, but in the meantime, I'll have to do like consulting work and kind of keep the boat going. Yeah. The whole, the whole schedule looks really good. Like everything looks, uh, super relevant. It's probably the first conference I've ever gone to where like I look at the schedule and I'm like excited for every single talk. Yeah. So it should be, uh, should be pretty fun. I agree. Cool. So maybe that's a good place to uh, start wrapping up for today. So yeah, do you have uh, you have anything else you want to touch on before we wrap things up? No, I think I'm good. Cool, man. Well, uh, if anyone's interested in show notes for this episode, you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash 62. Thanks to Rollbar and Hired for sponsoring the podcast as always. And if you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful too. Thanks everyone. See you next time.